A Christian is in great danger when his actions are in conflict with his faith. Good morning. Well, it's uh, great to be back with you. We have missed you all so much. The last time I had the privilege of preaching here at WSBC was July 2020, and I preached on First uh, Peter some three and a half years ago. It's amazing to see that so much is different, and yet so much is still the same. Brian is now an elder. Uh, Marco is back. Uh, Brandon's here. Uh, there are more babies uh, that I haven't met before. The bulletins still look exactly the same <laughs> as they did back then. The coffee still tastes the same as it did uh, three years ago. And by God's grace, no matter the distance, the time, or the geography, we remain united in the same hope and the same gospel that we have been singing about this morning together. So this morning I bring you greetings from Bangkok City Baptist Church. BCBC is a new church uh, planted in the city of Bangkok, a church that was planted because out of the pain and the grief of COVID, God saw fit to scatter some families to go from this city to plant a new church, a new gospel preaching church in that city. So I want to thank you for your prayers and your support uh, over the, the years as we have gone out from this city. If you ever find yourself in Bangkok, which I hope you will, one day you'll find a church family there that will welcome you uh, warmly. So welcome all to BCBC. Well, friends, I wonder if I were to ask you, what is one of the things you hate the most? I wonder how you would answer. Maybe spiders, maybe cold. Well, for me, I hate conflict. I really hate conflict. If you get to know me, you'll know there's no more awkward situation for me than to be in a room and all of a sudden, the tension begins to rise. Words are exchanged, glances are given, displeasure is obvious, Peace has evaporated. I hate conflict when the conflict is with me, but even worse is witnessing others who are in conflict with each other. I'm sure you've been there. You've been invited to a friend's house for dinner. Everything seems to be going great. The conversation is enjoyable. The food is delicious. The, the laughter is free flowing. And all of a sudden, the husband says something stupid. And insensitive, and it usually is the husband. And I can usually pick up on these things instantly. 
And as soon as the errant words leave his mouth, the knot in my stomach begins to form. The wife doesn't say anything straight away. But you can tell by the look on her face, the expression in her eyes. She's not going to let this go. I hope beyond hope that I've misread the situation, that the husband's foolish words will just be ignored. But as I look down at my plate, playing my fork, my eyes closed, my heart thumping, it happens. What did you just say? She says, her tone cutting the air like a samurai sword, and, and that's it. Even if the conversation is over in three minutes, the next three hours of my life are an angst-filled vortex of emotions until I am reassured that the world has not ended, my friends are not getting a divorce, and by tomorrow I am the only one still thinking about what happened the night before. And God in His kindness and wisdom gave me three sons. And from the moment they wake up, and by the time they utter their first word of the day, war commences. That's my Lego. Give it to me. He touched me. I don't want oatmeal. The soundtrack of the 6.30 a.m. hour is usually the soundtrack of war and mortal combat. Literally every day of my life involves a fight with an American. My son's daily hostilities fought out on the battlefield of our living room rug. This, I am convinced, is the main contributing factor to my hair loss. I hate conflict. Well, this morning, we're going to do the very thing that I hate the most. We're going to be witnessing and studying a serious conflict. If you can begin to turn to the book of Galatians, we're going to be in chapter 2 this morning. In chapter 1 of Galatians, we read how Paul recounts that after his radical conversion, he went to Jerusalem, the chief city of the Jews, where he received, where he was, received the right hand of fellowship with Peter and James and John the former persecutor of the church, being accepted as a brother and a servant of the church. There was peace and there was unity and there was love and it was beautiful. Well, this morning, in our text, we're going to be considering together, we find ourselves in the Gentile city of Antioch in Syria. Paul invites us to witness one of the most serious conflicts in the early church. He wants us to pull up a seat and listen as he retells the encounter that he had with Peter, his fellow apostle, an encounter that John Stott describes as without deep doubt, without doubt, the most tense and dramatic episode in the entire New Testament. Two leading apostles of Jesus Christ face to face in complete and open conflict. Well, let's read about it now. Galatians 2. Verse 11 to 21. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. 
For before a certain man came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then? that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live in, by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Amen. In these verses, we see how Peter shows up in Antioch, and when he does, Paul opposes Peter to his face. This is serious. If Brian and I had a public disagreement in the middle of this service, and Brian got up to me in my face and confronted me, well, that would be pretty bad. But Peter and Paul, these were apostles. Apostles, directly appointed by Jesus Christ himself in public conflict with each other. Well, friends, I believe the reason why this conflict was so tense and so serious was that something massive was at stake here. See, Paul's behavior contradicted his belief. And as we're going to see in a moment or so, the actions of one of the apostles betrayed his words and effectively made a mockery of the gospel. So really the main point of this text, and therefore the main point of the sermon, our sermon this morning is simply this. A Christian is in great danger when his actions are in conflict with his faith. A Christian is in great danger when his actions are in conflict with his faith. Peter was condemned by Paul publicly because he allowed fear to control his behavior, thus making a mockery of his faith. So in order to help us understand this text, we're going to break it down into two sections this morning. Part 1, verses 11 to 14, we're going to see a fear, a fear that condemns. 
And in part two, verses 15 to 21, a faith that justifies, a fear that condemns, a faith that justifies. And I pray this morning as we consider this most tense of episodes in the history of the church that we too will learn to live in such a way that our actions and our faith are never in conflict with each other. So let's first consider a fear that condemns. Look again at verses 11 to 13. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before some men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. In this episode, we see two apostles saying face to face to each other in open public conflict, two apostles who loved Jesus. See, these apostles were called by Jesus Christ. These two apostles believed the same gospel. It's important for us to see this. This conflict is not about faith. This conflict is not about their belief. These two men affirmed each other's faith. Paul is not in any way claiming that Peter is denying the truthfulness of the gospel in his teaching or belief. Now the issue here is not what Peter taught, is not what Peter believed, it's in how he behaved. Peter's offense against the gospel was in his conduct. His behavior betrayed his beliefs. So what exactly did he do? Well, Peter has shown up in Antioch. Antioch is the home to the, the main Gentile church. This is Paul's sending church to the, to the, as he goes across the region to places such as Galatia to plant churches. The Antioch church is a, it's an incredibly important and influential church. Peter, one of the main leaders, he's one of the main leaders of the Jerusalem church, another church in another city. So he arrives, he comes to Antioch, and when he does... First of all, when he first arrives, he's got no problems fellowshipping with these Gentile Christians. Christians, since the earliest of days, love to eat together. I'm sure you all love to eat together. Eating together is an important expression of our fellowship. And so the Christians in Antioch, are they, they often ate together. So Peter, as a guest, he's gonna, he would sit with them and he would eat with them. This was normal. These Gentile converts, they, they were not circumcised. They didn't obey the Jewish food laws. And yet Peter happily sat down and ate with them. Why wouldn't he? Early in Galatians, you can read about a time when Titus went to Jerusalem with Paul and Peter accepted Titus as a true believer, even though he was an uncircumcised Greek. Peter didn't compel Titus to to be circumcised before he would accept him as a true Christian. And here he's not compelling the Gentiles to change their eating habits. He happily and willingly ate with them. He accepted them as true Christians. And some of you may be asking, what's the big deal about food? Why were these Jews so obsessed with food 
and circumcision. Well, to fully understand what's going on here, we need to understand a little about what the Jews thought about themselves and about certain foods. You see, the Jews believed they were a chosen race. They'd been set apart by God as a, as a chosen and a holy people. And this setting apart was most clearly defined by three things. To be circumcised, to obey the Sabbath, and to abstain, to not eat unclean foods. These three things marked them out as different to the Gentiles. So the Jews were prohibited from eating foods that God had declared to be unclean, such as shellfish and pork. You can find the full list in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. So to eat any food that was considered unclean, well, it would make them unclean. It would make them just like everybody else. It would mean they were no longer different to any other race. There was no longer, they were no longer special. It meant they were contaminated. So to be a good Jew was to only eat certain foods that God declared to be clean. So imagine you're a Jew, and this is your life, and then you become a Christian. Well, what do you do? See, when Jews became Christians, their world was literally turned upside down, even to what they now eat, food that once would provoke guilt. They now said, you can eat this, eat it. Even those Jews who believed in the gospel still had a really hard time letting go of their practices. Many of them wanted to protect their special status. Peter really struggled with this. Until one night, when God gave him a vision, we can read about it in Acts 10 and 11. God gave Peter a vision of a, a sheet coming down from heaven. And on the sheet, he saw a buffet of unclean foods, shellfish, birds of prey, pigs, reptiles. Then he heard a voice saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said no. He refused. He couldn't. These rules were so ingrained in him. Then the voice said, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. In other words, God has now declared all foods are clean. God has declared all those who believe clean. The walls that separated have now gone. God has declared all those who believe are now clean. And immediately Peter responded in faith. In that moment, we read in Acts 10, he immediately responded in faith. He goes to the home of Cornelius. And what does he do? Cornelius home, a Gentile believer, he eats with him. On this occasion, Peter's actions are in complete agreement with his faith. And now, just a little while later, Peter finds himself in Antioch, and he has no problems eating with the Gentile believers until, until a certain group of men show up. Verse 12 says, a certain group of men from James appear. Well, who are these men? Well, these gate crashes to the party were most likely professing Jewish Christians, but they held to a false Jewish nationalistic gospel. 
Paul says they came from James. It doesn't mean that James sent them. It just means they came from his church. These men started preaching that to be a true Christian, you had to be circumcised and you had to still obey the law of Moses. They went even further. They preached that it was wrong for Jewish Christians to fellowship with uncircumcised Gentile Christians. They wanted to protect their special status. They were preaching a, a gospel of one God, but two tables. One Savior, but two congregations. They were trying to rebuild the walls of separation, but within the church. And astonishingly, a number began to be convinced by them. In fact, they became so successful that even Peter and Barnabas fell under their spell. Look at verses 12 and 13. It says, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. So by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Why did he do it? Why did Peter separate himself? Why did Peter, a leader of the Jerusalem church, an apostle, give in to the pressure of the judging eyes and the critical sneers of these false teachers? Why did he do it? Well, the answer is plain for us to see. It says, he was afraid. He was afraid of their words. He was afraid of their accusations. He was afraid of their looks. He was probably afraid of persecution. In other words, he wanted to save his bacon by refusing to eat bacon. Brandon, you got to laugh at that point. Thanks. See, Peter may be saved by grace. He may be an apostle. He may be the rock upon which Jesus said he would build the church, but Peter, at the end of the day, was still Peter. And here we see Peter, the waverer. We've met him before. We've seen this guy before. Peter wavered never once in his doctrine, but he often wavered in his behavior. Peter tended to do this, didn't he? Peter has a track, record, a track record of wavering. Peter, the one who denied Jesus three times when he was threatened because he was afraid by a servant girl. Peter, who in a moment of fear-fueled insanity took out his sword and he cut off the ear of a Roman soldier. Peter was not the most stable of men. And when Jesus called Peter the rock, he didn't mean that at that moment, Peter was instantly transformed into this rock-like character, never again moved by turmoil. No, Christ designated the most wavering of men, a rock. Not because Peter would literally be a rock, but that Jesus would so undergird his faith and his doctrine that this man would persevere in the gospel and remain loyal to Christ and his church until the very end. And he did. 
He did. He was a rock not because he never once wavered, but because he always repented. And he always persisted. And he persevered to the end. So even though Peter was the rock, he was also a man prone to fear, and he often gave in to his fear. And in this episode, Peter gave in to his old ways. He allowed fear to consume him. Once again, in that moment of fear, he lost sight of his senses, and he fell back. He fell back into his old ways, into slavery. His belief did not waver, but his behavior momentarily was in conflict with his faith. Friends, there's much here for us in these verses. First, there's a reminder that no human leader of the church is infallible. Even Peter had moments in which fear caused him to wobble in his behavior. And his behavior, therefore, betrayed his convictions. Your leaders will be the same. I love your elders. Brian and Luke, Marco. They have cared so well for me and my family over the years. But the leaders of this church, although they are faithful men, well, they're going to be assaulted by moments of fear. Controversies are going to arise in the congregation. Men bent on sowing seeds of confusion will enter into the assembly. Pressures are going to seem insurmountable. Finances are going to seem tight. Decisions are going to come before them, and they don't know what way to go. Fear will often grip them. The devil will do all he can to cause the elders of this church and my church in Bangkok to fall back into fear. And there will be times, and I can guarantee you, when we will waver, not our convictions, but in our behavior. Harsh words will be spoken. Decisions will be made too rashly. Things will be forgotten that should not have been forgotten. Church leaders, just like Peter, well, we're all human. Church leaders need friends, and they need rest, and they need grace, and they need prayer. So would you pray for your elders to not fall back into fear? Pray that God would protect them from enemies, both within and without. Pray that their words and their actions will always be consistent with their beliefs. Pray that they would be fortified by a rock-like faith. And second of all, all of us as Christians are vulnerable in, to fear. All of us are vulnerable to fall into fear and being condemned. If Peter could fall, well, then any of us could. You see, fear is a ruthless ruler of the soul. Fear causes us to do things that betray our faith and deny the truth. So friends, what ways does fear affect your behavior? In what ways are you prone to waver? Fear draws us away from truth with its lies. Fear pulls us into its orbit with its deception. Fear separates us always from God and His people. Fear says God can never be enough to meet your needs. Fear of missing out. Fear of being alone. Fear of rejection. Fear of suffering. Fear of persecution. 
Fear that leads to secret and shameful sin. Viewing content online you know to be unacceptable to God. Drinking too much to numb the pain that you have told no one about because you're too afraid. Lying and cheating in order to get the thing you think you need. But letting no one in to where you truly are because of fear. Fear Fear-fueled rage causing you to lash out and yell at others. Engaging in behavior that in that moment totally and utterly betrays your convictions. Fear that makes you feel awkward being around God's people. Fear that leads you to withdraw, to hide. You fear the questions of those you've been covenanted with. And so before you know it, fear has built a wall separating you from God's people. Fear, if we give it enough oxygen to breathe, will always separate us from God and his people. But friends, it doesn't have to be this way. Perfect love casts out fear. And we are the recipients of such love. And by that love, we have been adopted as children of God. Children of God. For we truly knew how secure we are, then we would never again fall back into fear. Romans 8 says, For those who were led by the Spirit of God are what? Children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves, so you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received about brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. You see, our fear leads to behavior that betrays our convictions and denies our identity. Fear lies about who we are and who our God is. And the remedy is to remember truth. Remember who you are. This is what Paul does. This is what Paul is about to do to Peter. Paul literally gets into Peter's face, not for him to face his fear, but for him to face the truth. For him to face the truth of who he truly is and who his God is. Look at verse 14. When I saw they were acting, not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Paul's literally yelling at Peter and says, Peter, wake up. Your fear is lying to you. You are not acting in line with the gospel. You're behaving as if you're saved by your works. But it's a lie. You don't, you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. You've been saved by Jesus Christ. You've been loved by Jesus Christ. You've been adopted by God the Father. You're a child of the living God. It doesn't matter one bit what these men from James think about you. It doesn't matter what they say about you. What matters is what God thinks about you. So act like the child of the living God that you are. Friends, we need people in our life willing to do this for us. We need people in our life who are willing to get into our face 
and remind us of who we are in Christ. When we step out of line, which we all will, we need brothers and sisters to bring us back, to remind us of truth, to remind us of our identity. So do you allow others to do that for you? Can you right now name in your mind people that do that for you? If you don't, would you reach out and find that person in this body, in this church? Will you be that for someone else? That's what it means to be a church. This is what it means to be covenanted with each other, to invite each other into our fears and to remind each other of the truth, to tear down the fearful walls that separate and be bound together in love and truth. So first we see there's a fear that condemns. And second, praise God, there is a faith that justifies. Look at verses 15 to 21. We who are Jews by birth are not sinful Gentiles. No, that person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I die to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. <clears throat> Friends, we now come to some of the most beautiful words in the New Testament. Some of the most liberating truths of the gospel. We're introduced in these verses to one of the most important words of the Christian faith. A word that is both the central word of this entire letter to the Galatians, and one of the words that is the most central word to the entire Christian gospel. It's the word justified. You see in verse 15, it's again there in verse 16. It's there again in verse 17. Justified. So it's important for us to understand this word if we're going to understand the gospel. So Paul therefore takes time in his rebuke of Peter, who has momentarily forgotten the gospel, to unfold the meaning of justification. For it is the do this doctrine, the doctrine of justification, that Peter's behavior is most in conflict with. Peter, by removing himself from the Gentiles, is effectively saying to those Gentile Christians that the gospel is not enough to cleanse a man. The Gentile believers are not fully justified. They are still unclean. His act of separation strikes at the very heart of the gospel. See, this doctrine of justification, this is the good news of the gospel. Justification is the very reason Jesus died on the cross. 
It's the good news that sinful men and women like you and me, Jew and Gentile alike, sinful from our mother's womb, corrupted, unclean, defiled, guilty, can now be made acceptable to a holy God. Not because of any works that we may do. Not because of any act of physical or bodily mutilation in accordance with some law. Not because of any abstinence from any food once declared unclean. Not because of any rules we might obey. Not because of any merit we may have earned. Not because of any good deeds we may have done. No. Not even because of the, based on the consistency and the unwavering nature of our behavior. No, we're justified. And we are made right before a holy God through the simple act of faith in Jesus Christ alone. Verse 16 says, A person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Justified. By faith. Martin Luther, that great reformer, says that if churches were to ever lose the doctrine of justification by faith alone, then they have lost the entire gospel. So if this doctrine is so central to our faith, then we need to understand it and we need to rightly apply it and we need to be living it. So what does it mean? Well, this word justified is, is a legal term. To be justified, it just means to not be condemned. It's the complete opposite of being condemned. All of us in our sins were condemned. All who sin, Jews and Gentiles, Chinese and Scots, we all stand as equal under the weight of our condemnation. We're all unclean, all of us. None of us have obeyed God's law perfectly. We have all sinned. To sin once is to be condemned eternally. All of mankind, therefore, is in the dark. And the charge sheet is read, and the charges against us are serious. Hypocrisy, deception, lying, lust, greed, covetousness, idolatry, murder, treason. None of us can claim to be without sins. In fact, if any of us do claim to be without sin, we make ourselves a liar, therefore making ourselves confirming we're a sinner. We're all sinners. We've all sinned against the holy God, and therefore we stand condemned. And the verdict has been issued for Jew and Gentile alike. Guilty. 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 And for our crimes, a death sentence awaits. For death is the only possible punishment that can adequately pay for the sins of mankind against a holy God. A fearful death. And a permanent separation from all that is good, for all of eternity. But God, as verse 20 says, in His great love for us, while we were still sinners, sent His Son Jesus into the world to be born a baby, to live the perfect life that you and I can never live, and the charge sheet against him and him alone is completely empty. He never once sinned. He never once wavered in his obedience. His behavior and his identity were never once 
in conflict. And he obeyed all the way to the cross. He was crucified on the cross where he endured the most agonizing pain known to man. And he was separated from God the Father for three days until he rose from the grave victoriously, having conquered sin and death. And now those who place their faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation will be declared justified. See, we place our faith in him, in Jesus. Then God will credit his obedience to us. Christ, God will credit his death to our account. Jesus took our punishment. He paid the price. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul says in verse 20, we who believe in Christ have been crucified with Christ and we no longer live. We no longer live. But Christ lives in us. The life we now live in the body, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We are now in Christ. Christ now lives in us. And how can those who are united to Christ ever be condemned? Think about it. How can we be condemned if Christ is in us? It would mean condemning Jesus all over again. It's impossible. There is no condemnation. The charge sheet has been wiped clean. The record has been quashed. The guilt has been removed. For we have been justified by faith. And this is the same whether we were born a Jew or born a Gentile. You see, Paul is effectively saying to Peter and the other wavering Jews, circumcision saved no one. And never has. Food laws saved no one and never did. The sacrifices of yesterday provides no remission for the guilt of today. Not a single good work performed by man has ever been a salvific work. The Jews needed Jesus just as much in the Old Testament as they do now. The hope for the Jew is the same as the hope for the Gentile. You see, these Judaizers were deluded by a fearful deception. The reality is they were the ones afraid. They were the ones actually in fear. They were all afraid that the cross of Christ was not enough to save them. And this ultimately is the fear that ultimately condemns. They didn't believe Jesus was enough. They were deluded into believing that they needed to justify themselves. And this delusion that man can justify himself, save himself, make himself right before a holy God is the delusion shared by every single religion of the world. Judaism, Islam, Buddhism. It is a delusion rooted in fear. It is a delusion because it is impossible. No man, no one, can ever justify himself by perfectly obeying the law because no one is capable of perfectly obeying the law except one, one man, Jesus Christ. We may be able to keep some of the law some of the time, but there's only one man who has kept all of the law all of the time. 
So whether we are Jew or Greek, Thai or Chinese, educated or uneducated, tall or short, rich or poor, there's only one way of salvation. And it's the same way it's preached here this morning, and it's preached in Bangkok this morning, and will be preached across pulpits, across this land, Lord willing, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. So friends, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you stand this morning justified. Your justification can never be altered. Once declared justified, always justified. Your guilt has been erased. All of it. Your punishment has been paid. Today, you are not condemned. Tomorrow, you will not be condemned. On that final day, when you stand before Jesus Christ, you will not be condemned. That is why we can celebrate this meal that we're about to partake in together as one people, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Because the Son of God, He's risen. The night is no more. The battle is over. The conflict, it's ended. The darkness of our condemnation has been replaced with the light of our salvation. The tender mercy of God has come upon you. See, Jesus was born, forgiveness incarnate, to declare and to accomplish the justification of the elect. Jesus was born, grace personified, to meet the greatest needs and longings of all mankind. Jesus was born, mercy embodied, to turn the promise of justification into the reality of salvation. So friends, when your heart is tempted to waver from an awareness of God's great love for you and His tender mercy towards you, that is when you're most in danger of falling back into fear. But you don't have to fall back. There is a fear that condemns. But there's an even greater faith that justifies. And in faith, we can stand strong when those fears assault us, which they will. Remind yourself of the truth of why He came. Remind yourself how much He's loved you. Remind yourself of who you now are. For because of your faith, because of your faith, Jesus will never draw back from you. Because of your faith, Jesus will never be embarrassed of you. Because of your faith, Jesus will never separate himself from you. Because of your faith, Jesus will never one day reject you. West Shanghai Baptist Church, you have no reason to fall back into a fear that condemns because you have been justified by faith. And it's because of this truth that we can all, as one people, celebrate together now our one hope and the one gospel from Shanghai to Bangkok to Jerusalem to the ends of the earth the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ our one and only Savior of the world let's pray 
Oh, Heavenly Father, we confess that it's so easy for us to waver in our own behavior and fall back into fear. Lord, I pray that you would share up our faith even as we go into this week, even as we partake of this meal now together. And that you would help us to not fall back into fear. And to know that we are yours. And that you, Jesus, are in us. And you will never leave us. And you will never forsake us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.